I'm digging for feeling. And when I hit the feeling, that's when I get the shiver, kind of like sent a jolt through me. Something about writing the book made me realise that I needed a drastic change in my life. That's just called relating to people. And then maybe writers are the people who can't do that in a normal way and have to do it through writing things. She's like, this is quite personal, Amy. Are you, are you sure you want to publish this? It's a miracle to me that I've managed to finish anything, let alone now, like six books. Yeah, they exist, don't they? So I must have done them. <laughs> Welcome to In Haste with me, Alice Vincent. And me, Charlotte Runcie. In this series, we speak to brilliant authors about the challenges of writing their books and putting them out into the world. And we talk about the matter of writing when you have a real life to live. This is where we discuss how great books really get written. So Charlotte, what have you been writing or indeed not writing this week? Well, I, so I'm doing a PhD and I'm in the middle of the sec- like writing the second chapter. So I have that kind of second album syndrome. And the first chapter went really well and some of it was published and I was on a high. <laughs> and then, then I had to come at the second chapter. And so my PhD is in um, medieval and modern literature. I'm looking at medievalism in modern literature, particularly folk horror. And the period that I'm covering in my second chapter is around the turn of the 19th century. And what this is quite a new period for me, and this has been the problem, because when I've been putting together all my material for this chapter, I've been trying to cram everything I know about it in, I think possibly because I'm insecure and think I don't know enough. So it's a classic <laughs> just, like nonfiction approach, right? It's like, if I just research harder, it'll be fine. Yeah. So I put it all in and then my supervisors essentially just said, this is too broad. You're explaining everything that happened in 1908. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> no, no one needs to know all of this. So I, I need to choose one thing to focus on actually quite appropriate for our discussion with our guests today but I am finding it difficult to narrow down the focus and pick one thing to look at in depth instead of just in a panic trying to cover absolutely everything um which is very difficult for me and and yeah how do you approach that because you're a writer of many illustrious works of non-fiction Alice how do you approach deciding what to focus on and what um well it's a really good question because it's where I'm at at the moment with my current manuscript and I am a real one for researching my way out of not writing. And, and I'll just sit there and go on these internet wormholes and be like, well, I've spent four hours reading about this extremely niche and unrelated thing. And therefore, I've done my work for the day. And it's like, no, you've written nothing. But I, as you know, we're now on number three slash four, depending on how you count it, uh, book. And I know that it's just something I have to go through. And eventually, it'll get to a point where I can't not write because the deadline is too impending and then at that point I just go pure efficiency so I think you'll get to that point where you have to write because you've got no option yeah I think it's just yeah picking that one thing I sort of keep thinking oh am I going to be am I going to focus on archaeology or am I going to focus on occultism in these books and I just can't really decide because it's all too interesting which is a nice problem to have and a problem that we will talk about more later but Alice how has your writing been going this week it's it's not been going Amazingly, but I have found that, and again, it's it's so relevant to today's guest, which is that I have found my kind of crisis and productivity levels and the way I've thought about time has been directly pegged to the moon. <laughs> We're in the, we, in the, the last few days, we have seen a full moon and it's winter. So the moon is really bright and so beautiful and it rises really early in the afternoon. And it's felt like this really present 
presence. And I think as I texted you the other day, I was like, I tend to go a bit loopy when the moon happens. And lo and behold, I had this sort of work slash internet slash overwhelm spiral yesterday. And then last night I'd been working late and I came out of the hut and the moon was full and beautiful and so mesmerizing. And I just stood and looked at it and had this exhaled for what felt like the first time all day I'd breathed out properly. And then I slept quite well. And this morning I woke up and I was just like, right, cool. We're going to get on with it. And I wrote a big list of everything I have to do and when I'm going to do it. And I, f- I just feel a lot better. So you communed thank you, with moon. the moon. I communed wow. with the moon. <laughs> and then it all <laughs> fell into place. That's very inspiring. Oh, I mean, you've got to you, take, take the scraps where you can. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, is this for Oliver Berkman? Does he commune with the moon? I don't know. It's the one thing we didn't ask him about. And he is our guest today, the fantastic author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Yeah, I feel like I'm not so much a reader of Oliver Berkman as a disciple at this point. <laughs> I'm obsessed with his books. Yeah, we were both a bit overwhelmed by Oliver Berkman. He's not only a brilliant journalist, but he's written the kind of non-fiction book that makes you completely change how you see the world. Yeah, that's what happened to me. Anyway, I so I started reading 4,000 Weeks last summer because the reason I read it is because I felt as though I didn't have time to read any books or write anything. I was just, there's too many books, there's too much stuff on. You know, I've got very young children, I've got a job. And that was really upsetting to me and kind of heartbreaking because being a reader and being a writer were a really core part of how I think of myself. So when I felt like I couldn't read any books, that was like deeply upsetting. And then I found actually my husband told me about 4,000 weeks and he said, you have to read this book. And I said, you know, what do you mean? I don't have time to read that book because I don't have time to read any books. (laughs) I said, no, then in that case, you really need to read it. And I read it and it was really transformational for me, partly because here was a book written by a newspaper journalist that I already respected as a kind of a colleague because being a newspaper journalist was my day job at the time. But I also really liked that it didn't promise any particular formula or organizational hack that was going to just immediately fix all of your problems, like split your time into 20 minute chunks or whatever. Instead, it's just a much more philosophical and holistic way of thinking about time and your life and what's important. And I should say this book has been an absolutely barnstorming international bestseller. So I think the message of it has really resonated with a lot of people because I think it feels just very important for how we all live now in the West with overwhelm and inputs all the time. I mean, in many ways, it's sort of the the ultimate in haste book. Almost as soon as we started talking about this podcast, we realised that we wanted to talk to Oliver about 4,000 weeks. And it's a book I have a really clear memory of reading, but it's also a book I have a very clear memory of people talking to me about. You know, I was working at Penguin when it came out and it was this, we talk about books all the time, but it was this book that was just passed around the office. I remember my boss kind of leaving it on people's desks and stuff. And I've gone on to do the same thing. When I teach at writing retreats, it comes up a lot for two reasons. One is that it's a fantastically written nonfiction book and that it's incredibly munchable and not dry and very conversational. And again, as you say, not preachy, it doesn't promise anything, but it's just interesting. But the other thing is that one of the biggest problems I see when people come on the retreat and they want to learn how to write is that they talk about time. They say, I don't have time to write. I I come away for a week and I write them, but I go home and I stop. And this is at the very heart of Berkman's book, that you're never always going to have time to do everything you think you will. And the 
the more you make peace with that, the easier it will be. Yeah, the book itself is all about the concept of finitude, which is accepting the certainty that we will never have enough time to do all the things we want to do. So it's called 4,000 weeks because that's roughly the average human lifespan. That's all the time we can expect and we can't ever make more of it. But also at the same level, that is all we have. And that's all that really matters. Like you're never going to learn to become the world's greatest scuba diver unless that's something you really want to do. And that's fine. It's actually quite freeing. Let go, let go of the scuba diving dream. (laughs) Once again, we should warn you that due to some of the subject matter we discuss in this series, there is some swearing and some discussion of difficult subjects. So if that's not for you, we just wanted to let you know at the top. And if it's not apparent already, we really did love talking to Oliver. So we hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Hi, Oliver. It's great to have you. And I know that we're interrupting the writing of something for you. So I appreciate the time. How's it going? Oh, you know, I'm not sure I ever think it's going well (laughs) in the middle of it. I mean, individual days go well, but uh, I I always kind of feel like the project as a whole is, uh, is just sort of hanging on by the skin of its teeth. And I know that that's not true, actually. So I think it's probably going fine. Wow, that was a long answer. <laughs> I think that question. all books have that moment of crisis in the middle before you get towards the sunlit uplands of <laughs> of the ending, hopefully. I mean, personally, I find the crisis moment existing through about 80% of it. So. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about your book, 4,000 Weeks, which I have to say is the most uplifting book about the inevitability of death that I've ever read, (laughs) which is quite a feat. And you say in the book that you used to be a productivity geek and you're also a very experienced, eminent journalist of many years. But it really made me wonder, was there something specific that happened that made you decide to focus more philosophically on death and the meaning of life in a deeper sense rather than just on productivity? I mean, I think there were definitely points along the way that were more important than others. But really, it feels to me like a rather long, gradual process of the same thing in a way, right? So so one of the things that happened was that I wrote this column for The Guardian for years and years, where one of the things I did was to experiment with all sorts of productivity techniques and time management philosophies and all the rest of it. And if you do that for long enough, and you try out enough of them, you go through a sort of interesting stage of disillusionment almost in a a positive sense of the word because it's through the fact of trying all these things that you begin to think well maybe this silver bullet is never coming right maybe I'm never going to find the method that makes everything feel okay maybe that's the the wrong question somehow so I spent many years I now see trying to sort of get in control of my time feel like I was on top of everything feel like I didn't need to disappoint anybody or say no to anybody or take any tough decisions about how to use my time. And I think what happened in terms of the book 4,000 Weeks was that it sort of is what comes after it dawned on me that um, there was something amiss with the quest for that kind of silver bullet rather than that I just hadn't found the right one yet. So I guess I'm saying that it all seems like part and parcel of the same thing. I think on some level, I'm always just doing therapy on myself in public in, in writing about these things. And I've probably gone from not realizing I was doing that to being more conscious that that's what I'm doing. But um, but it's still the same thing. What I think is so interesting is that it's almost an anti-productivity book in some ways. It's 
I, what I love about reading it is that it's trying to get you as the reader to stop being obsessed with productivity. But yeah, I've seen the book has been enormously successful and it's been taken on board by a lot of other people who are very keen on productivity and time management. And it's almost, is that ironic for you that it's been taken on this, this Bible for them? I mean, yes and no. Right? I, you do. I've definitely seen people sort of do what I would say is learning the wrong lesson from it. Although I'm not sure that's ultimately up to me to say, but they're my people really, right? People who are sort of um, have this kind of fixation on feeling like they're doing more and more and more and 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 being as efficient as they can and and not having to drop any balls. And so sometimes I think there's a bit of a bait and switch that I'm performing in a way, which is people are coming to this book because they want to get more done. And then I'm slightly trying to pull the rug from under that. But I'm trying to pull the rug from under myself as well. This is getting complicated, but you know what I mean? Like I'm still a person who wants to, who has feels all those kind of, those sort of urges to be the master of my time and, and, and have every email answered in seconds. So, you know, I feel like me and those readers are all in this together. I think that's such an honest admission because, you know, it would be naive to think that writing the book maybe cured you of it. But what do you say to people who say, I've always wanted to write a book, but I don't have the time? Because, you know, we're talking about writing on this podcast and I host the writing retreat and every year people come back and they say, oh, I did so much last year and then, and then I ran out of time and so I'm back to continue my novel. And it's like, it's been 12 months. And the one thing that we never seem to be able to teach people is how to find the time to write their book. So what do you say to those people? I think the most basic thing in my experience is that one gets in one's own way, right? It's like, it's not true for pretty much anyone who's going to say that they don't have the time to write, that they literally don't have the time to write. I think what people really mean, or what I often find out I meant when I complain about not having time for something, is that, is that I do things that inhibit my use of that time. So what I'll say to people in that context is that you want to be wary of ideas like building a habit of daily writing, or doing a certain amount every single day, or putting consistency on a, on a pedestal. I always find that that ends up blocking action, right? Because it turns it into this whole intimidating thing. And so I'm always trying to say like, no, the thing that takes guts is just doing it for half an hour, like once, not half an hour every day and not half an hour at five in the morning or anything like that, but just once in the next 24 hours. There's a kind of courage that is required to just sort of launch yourself into your time, the willingness to actually do it. I do love that notion of courage because you're right. It's so much easier to just portion it off into being like, I'm going to have a writing practice and write for an hour every day. And then the minute you don't do that, you've fucked it. But if you're just like, okay, I've got 15 minutes and I'm just going to go and write a single sentence, but it's one more sentence I've written. As you say, it, ta it takes balls. And, and not only is it is it a terrible thing if you fall off a wagon, like the, as you're talking about, but also you just don't get started in the first place because you think to yourself, well, okay, I need to wait for a different time in my life when I can really expect to have that amount of time every day. When you say you still find it really hard, you know, what is it that stops you from writing, aside, aside from podcast recording with us generously, what is it that's stopping <laughs> you from writing at the moment? I guess I want to divide that into two categories and say, you know, 
I think the really important thing is it's internal. It's these ideas about what work needs to be or how consistent work needs to be and things like that. If you want a more down-to-earth answer about like what are the other things that compete for my time, then family. I've got a seven-year-old son and want to sort of show up for the role of being a father. And then within work, I guess it's all the work connected to sort of maintaining the business of what I do as opposed to the actual doing of it. I have a six-year-old daughter and um, I really feel that about the whole wanting to show up. You want to have this creative work. It's not just a sense of, I have to show up to work to keep food on the table. You want to engage creatively with your work as well and make it have meaning. But then engaging in that while your six or seven-year-old child wants you to look at their drawing they've just done or something much more mundane than that even feels this for me it feels like a tug in my in my brain a lot of the time and I'm really interested in how you keep this writing headspace in particular and still be a present parent the first thing I want to say is badly but no I think I've learned some things through trying to do it one thing that's really important I think is that there is no perfect solution in the sense that it would be totally legitimate and meaningful in some sense to spend every waking hour with my son. I think he might not like it, but you know what I mean? And likewise, you know, I could happily spend 16 hours a day in the headspace of my writing, not actually writing, but you know. So already any hope of combining those two in a way that feels like enough is kind of off the table. I think it's a very liberating thought, right? It's like it is not up to you or me to try to come up with the scheme that is going to make you feel like you're maximizing what you could do in these two realms. There's a trade-off. They're both going to be less than what would be the maximal thing. There's an element of forgiving yourself as a parent as well, I think, that has to come into that. Right, yeah. But sort of part part of it's forgiving yourself for not being God, right? I mean, it's yeah. not just it's not just that you're that you're sort of an unusually flawed person or something. Although any one person might be, I suppose, it's just like you're trying to do something that a human can't do, which is give all your waking time to one thing and also give all your waking time to something else. There is an idea in the book that you have a closed to do list with just one big project on the go, or certainly things that you can't add anything else onto it until the tasks you have are complete. My husband and I do this since reading your book. We both read it at the same time. And we actually, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but we actually call them, we actually call them our Berkmans. (laughs) Like if one of us is feeling a bit overwhelmed, we'll say, what are your Berkmans (laughs) at the moment? Do you have too many? I'm so glad you said this, Charlotte. I love that. I'm now regretting it it already, but (laughs) look, it's just how I get through the day. Just as weird for me as it is for you. It's been very helpful. It's been very helpful because it's it it's about letting go of what isn't important and actually remembering that there are 10 things you actually don't really need to do is really helpful. Do you have one thing that's on the go at the moment that is your main thing? I do. I mean, I am working on a on a book. I can talk a bit more about it, but the important thing for this part of our conversation is like, yeah, it needs to have any chance of being done in time on at, uh, at the way I want to do it. It does need a lot of regular attention and it needs to not get squeezed out by things you know in that way that is just so easy because they feel in the moment like you can't afford not to do the other things so 
I think that the the method you're talking about, so make a sort of full list of absolutely everything on your plate, could be hundreds of items long. It doesn't matter. It's just like endless, and that you add more stuff to when it comes up. But then you 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 feed items from that list onto a onto a closed list that might have five or or ten slots on it, and you can't feed any more until you free up a slot by doing one of the one of the actions. This I've found I use a sort of slightly elaborated version of this that I don't need to probably go into, but this I think is really, really useful as a way of sort of keeping things moving day to day. You wouldn't want to put write a book in one of those slots because that is a huge drain blockage that's going to be there forever. You might want to put uh, specific subtasks associated with a book, right? Planning a chapter or writing a chapter or doing some particular bit of research into that space because it then sort of encourages you to kind of do that thing and then be done with it and move on to the next one and then be done with it. All it's doing, and this is this is the kind of productivity technique I do like, right? All it's doing is making you conscious of what was already the case, which is your own attention and time is a is the huge bottleneck on on anything you do. And instead of pretending otherwise, it just sort of puts it right in front of your of your face that that you can only be doing a handful of things at any one time. You make more of an impact on more of them by being willing to do them sequentially, by being willing to make some of them wait than if you try to sort of fire your attention and energy at all of them at once. Like getting really good at procrastinating, essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's the point I'm sort of uh, reaching after in the book when I talk about like, you know, procrastination is something to get better at rather than to eradicate. It's like, we're doing it anyway, if that means not making progress on important things crucial thing is to find ways to at least make progress on one or two things. I think this idea that there is friction that can push into your writing is something I find really fascinating. And some people say, you know, a grudge can be very creatively inspiring. I'm dying to ask you, do you have a writing nemesis? And is it Alain de Botton? <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> Um, Out of salt, I can taste it from here. <laughs> no, he's he's a fascinating person. I think he does something slightly different from you, though. Yeah, you know, I don't know what I don't have a nemesis in the sense of like a person I feel rivalrous with. Um, I I don't. I really genuinely don't think that. But I do think you you do sort of nominate other writers as into different roles, don't you? Like maybe not. I'm trying to think because I don't want to be dishonest if there's somebody who I sort of want to destroy <laughs> or something. But I wrote recently in a newsletter about how there are like there are some writers, a handful of writers whose prose style I admire so much that I mustn't read them when I'm trying to write. Can you name them? Janet Malcolm, basically, but a few others. Then occasionally in bad parts of the writing process, I do occasionally read things because I think they're so bad that makes me feel happy by comparison. And I don't think I should name names there. <laughs> um, but there is this other category of writers who like, they're really good, but they're not quite, they're not the sort of intimidating writers I have idolized somehow. They're just writers, some of whom I know personally, whose writing has this quality of like being themselves. Not, not I'm not saying like I know them personally, so I know they're being themselves. I just mean it's in the writing, this sense of like, they're just doing the thing that they are on the planet to do. And I find that really inspiring to read, not because I want to write like them, but because I want to write like me in the way that they seem to write like them. 
I wanted to talk to you about journalism, actually, because you've written the book, you're also a journalist, and your book is one of those books that I actually have a kind of light bulb memory of reading and not to sound too fancy, but I do read quite a lot of books. I don't really remember all of the ones I read, but I know I was sitting on the sofa and it was a sort of balmy summer evening and I, I read like 160 pages in a sitting. And, uh, and I think part of the reason why that is, is because it reads to me like a really good piece of long form journalism. It has a pace and an immediacy and a grabbiness that that to me is is the stuff that you want on a page. Do you have two different brains? Do you have like author brain and journalist brain or is it all just Berkman no. brain? I think it's all journalism, really. Right. I mean, looking back, I think like working for years on G2 at The Guardian was a very specific and useful thing in terms of the combination of writing fast and writing journalistically with trying to be a bit high concept about it, <laughs> basically. And more concretely, you know, a thing I had to do week after week was in the specific context of a big G2 piece, right? I would, it would be decided at uh, sort of 10 o'clock on a Tuesday, how G2 was going to respond on Wednesday to a story that had broken on the Monday. And I would have until 6pm in those days, depending on how far Ian Katz could infuriate the printers by <laughs> laying the off stone time none of this is relevant anymore I know. oh but it's all so terrifyingly familiar <laughs> i was gonna say i'm right back in the newsroom right and and part of what you had to do in that time this is, feels like giving away too much of a secret but like was obviously without being dishonest in any way to give the sense of having really thought through this topic maybe for quite a, a number of days longing to be the new yorker writer who has who actually does have or used to have six months to ponder this topic in eight hours. And that's a that's a useful skill. I, I don't really mean to make it quite, sound quite so um, sort of fake as I just made it sound. Although I benefited a lot from that kind of journalistic mindset, which also helps a lot in terms of getting down to business and using time and all, you know, all the things that we've been talking about. I have been sort of rebelling against it for some years now in the sense that I like I really don't want a working life structured around like the feeling of urgency and the sort of knot in my stomach that says this has got to be done fast, fast, fast. And I'm, I, you know, I've only been very partially successful at uh, not going by the seat of my pants and not leaving everything to the last minute. But I, I love it when I'm not doing that. We've we've talked a bit about about that and, and prioritizing in work, in meaningful work and letting go of things that don't matter and letting go of some things that do matter. But I want to also talk to you a bit about convenience and comfort, because one of the fascinating ideas that you explore in the book is the idea that some things, there are things we love and that we actively want to do and that matter, but it makes us uncomfortable. So we want to write a chapter of a novel and yet suddenly the dishwasher needs to be unloaded and that feels more appealing or a podcast invites you to appear as a guest. And I just wanted to ask you a bit more about balancing comfort and discomfort because that's not really a matter of prioritising. That's something deeper, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's just this sort of, well, you've you've encapsulated it well, just that idea that um, it's not a coincidence, I suppose, is what I'd want to say, that the things that we care about the most are the ones that are that trigger the most of that kind of distraction and wanting to wanting to clean the kitchen having not wanted to clean the kitchen like you know when it needed doing or whatever and everyone has their own sort of 
psychological history that leads to that situation. But I think the sort of broad brush reason is that the things that we care about put us into this relationship with our limitations, the fact that we don't know how things are going to go, or if we have the skill, or if we have enough time, or if people are going to receive the work well. It, it puts all our insecurities into play, and the stakes feel high. And so I think then we're naturally would prefer in those moments to do something where the stakes feel low or where our insecurities are not brought into play in that way. And cleaning the kitchen is satisfying because you can be efficacious and you've got no doubt that you can be efficacious, right? You can leave your kitchen clean. Um, and then things like surfing the internet endlessly are appealing, at least in part, I think, because they do feel like like limitations don't apply. Like you're just sort of the stakes are low, but also you can go wherever you want and find out whatever you want and present yourself as whoever you want and, and all the rest of it. I think by far the most useful thing to do about this state of affairs is just to expect the the discomfort, right? I'm by far not the first to say that a very useful attitude to have about writer's block, to choose the sort of cliched example, is just that most of the time writing is going to feel kind of difficult and a little bit aggravating in a way doesn't mean there aren't some wonderful flow states, but the moment that you're just sort of expecting, yeah, okay, this is going to be a little bit hard, it's far easier to stay with it because you're not setting up this expectation that it should be um, like, uh, was it, is it Muriel Spark said, taking dictation from God? <laughs> yeah. Get out of here with that. <laughs> um, so just that expectation of, of difficulty, I think, is um, an act of kindness towards oneself. We've heard a lot about what stops you writing and, and the difficulties of creative work, but what is it that keeps you going, Oliver? I just know from too much experience that um, my mental health is dependent on it. And well, two things. Firstly, writing itself. So I do like I write morning pages most early most mornings and find that really, you know, I'm just a nicer person to be around if I've had the chance to do that. But also the, the specific kind of things that I'm doing in writing, which is maybe not universal, but sort of grappling with the kinds of issues that I'm grappling with. That just seems like sort of what I'm on the planet to do anyway, right? To sort of um, go through that that journey of understanding. And so it's kind of writing is just a seems to be a really good way to to do it. I want to make feelings and vague apprehensions of ideas clear and I love communicating them and it really make, I, it makes my day when I hear from someone that something has sort of landed with them and shifted something in them. So yeah, um, maybe if I was psychologically healthier, I'd just, you know, that's just called relating to people. And then maybe writers are the people who can't do that in a normal way and have to do it through, through uh, writing things. But it's, um, that's the point. And that just feels too central to ever want to give up. I feel as if I've just spent a week in a kind of monastic retreat. That was so nourishing. Thank you so much to Oliver for speaking to us. 4,000 Weeks is published by Vintage. And Oliver also has a newsletter, which I am addicted to, called The Imperfectionist, which is full of bite-sized contemporary existentialism and occasional handy time management tips. Speaking of newsletters, please do subscribe to In Haste on Substack, where we'll be continuing the conversation about books and exclusive extras, including new writing, bonus podcast content, and lots more. 
and keep listening to the podcast on Substack or wherever you get your podcasts. Head to inhaste.substack.com or check our show notes for more. Yes, do join us over there. And if you enjoyed In Haste, please leave a review if you can. It really helps other people find us. Our next guest is the Booker Prize longlisted novelist, Sophie McIntosh. I'm not really a person who finishes things. I was kind of a procrastinator. So the fact that I have written several books is kind of amazing to me. And I think it's just like, it's just my favorite thing. And that sounds really earnest and really like silly maybe, but it's just like, I just, lo- I do like love it. I just get such a lot of joy out of it. In Haste is produced by Holly Fisher for Hasty Productions. Our music is by Maria Chiara Ajiro with graphic design by Alicia Fernandez. 